do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Shoes. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome to issue one of the Dwarfcast's magazine rack, brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. This is the brand new series in which we reread, digest and dissect every single edition of the Red Dwarf's magazine, issue by issue. I'm Ian Symes and I'm more than familiar with this magazine already, having read them all from cover to cover several times over the years, poured over every comic strip and catalogued their entire contents in meticulous detail. Whereas my two colleagues are fucking idiots who barely glanced at this rich seam of Red Dwarf content until now. And so they'll be sharing their reactions and analysis as they uncover this treasure for the very first time. They are Jonathan Capps. Hello, and to be fair, we don't like run a fan site or anything like that, so why would we have read them? <laughs> and Danny Stevenson. Hello, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, we're starting with Volume 1, Issue 1 of what is technically known as the Red Dwarf magazine at this early stage in its history. We recommend you familiarise yourself with the mag before or during your listen of this Dwarfcast, and you can find a link to the PDF in the show notes on your podcast app or at www.ganymede.tv. But before we dive in, let's get into the mood by going on a journey back to this issue's cover date of March 1992. In the news this month, Prime Minister old John Gray Majors announces a general election to take place in April, with opinion polls predicting a sweeping victory for Neil Kinnock's Labour Party. The Duke and Duchess of York announced that they are to separate after six years of marriage, which was perhaps caused by one of the parties being a dirty fucking sweaty nonce. (laughs) Oh, not sweaty, he's not sweaty. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's untrue, (laughs) he could sue us for that one. To be safe, he's just a dirty fucking nonce. (laughs) My lawyers have told me to clarify. Bosnia-Herzegovina declares independence from Yugoslavia, while a referendum in South Africa votes to end apartheid, indicating an increased possibility of the existence of a nice South African. The 64th Academy Awards are dominated by The Silence of the Lambs and Terminator 2, with Vanilla Ice vehicle Cool as Ice cruelly overlooked. The final episodes of both Rainbow and Danger Mouse are aired, and even more tragically, Chris Evans makes his debut on BBC Radio 1. Actor John Boyega and footballer Danny Ings are born, although admittedly these aren't particularly newsworthy events at the time. On the day the magazine is released, January the 27th, Father of the Bride is top of the UK box office, and at number one in the music charts, as you may have guessed, is Stay by Shakespeare's sister. But perhaps most pertinently for this discussion, it's also the day that The Inquisitor airs for the first time on BBC Two. With all of that delicious context in mind, let's dive straight in, pausing only to impart our first impressions on the front cover. Do you like it? Yeah, I do. It's pretty nice, isn't it? You you tread a thin line with these highly stylized caricatures, I guess. Like the, some are good, some are shite. <laughs> but I <laughs> I like this one. I, I my brain cannot work out the timeline of events here because we've already got the pencil dwarf on this. Yeah. I think that's just a, a bad rendition rather than anything deliberate. Oh, holy stage. fuck. It really does because it's uh, it's because of the exaggerated hexagon. Oh, that's weird. I hadn't spotted that. I mean, Star- Starbug leaves a lot to be desired, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Starbug's a difficult one to do. The trails are in the weird place because they're the back of the chip rather than out of the yeah. trust. But we'll I like Hattie. Uh, yeah, Hattie's good. Holly looks great. Yeah. 
Chris does not look like Chris. Chris looks like, like uh, Prince the, Charles. We, we'll get onto this a bit later. The, there's talk of image rights in this issue. Yes. And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder. They're <laughs> <laughs> just playing it safe. Yeah. Because Craig, yeah, Lister Craig, spot on. Danny, spot on. Crichton, I don't think Robert Llewellyn would have to sign away his image rights, would he? he w- <laughs> I don't know. Peter Rag might, as the designer of the mask. Oh, maybe. <laughs> That's the only time we see Robert in comic book in this issue because he's not in yeah. the episode, so he's not there. Well, true, yeah. That's yeah. very true. And also, this is uh, the comic book artist is not Rushby, right? The cover was drawn by John Rushby, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the comic strip, which we'll get onto shortly, was by Alan Burroughs. Ah, yes. Had the art. Yeah. I know, it's nice. I like, you know. It's- not too busy. I, I like that they're already trying to curate their audience as well, like trying to wheedle out the Smeghead crowd. Yes, it's not for sale it's, to Smegheads. not for sale to Smegheads. And so if you were both a Smeghead and a woman and went into a shop, you couldn't buy this magazine. Or, or a Yorkie bar. bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I think that ad campaign was late 90s rather than early 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the, the backwards early 90s, it was the progressive late 90s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Turning over leaf. Sorry, I will just oh, say the Red Dwarf logo is acceptable. Yeah, it's fine. It's absolutely yeah. fine. I mean, there might be a, another piece of content that we have created that will appear at some point where we talk at length about the Red Dwarf logo. But this is this is a good this is a good example. So turning over leaf or scrolling down in your PDF, whichever <laughs> is appropriate. We've got a little introduction editorial type thing on the first page along with a picture from Series 4 where the colours are really washed out even in the print version. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. So I was wondering how... Because like, anyone that's looking at the PDF will see that it's really washed out at times, the PDF, but even in the print version, you can't see Rimmer's H properly. I can barely yeah. see that. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I can't remember what the original fo- photo looks like. If I remember rightly, then actually there's more background. Like, I don't remember it being on a black background. I think that's been edited. Unless I'm misremembering. I can't quite remember, but I'm going to look it up. Because I think this was also the cover of the companion, that photo. Oh, yeah. That's Series 4 era as well, isn't it? So this photo is, is also the one that's used as the cover of the official Red Dwarf companion. And I can't really tell on this tiny thumbnail that I found. Uh, but it, it, did ha- it had a dark background, but slightly more detailed than this. This does look like it's been cut out. The H is definitely still quite overexposed on the companion one as well, so I wonder if it was just an issue with the lighting of trying to match everyone's skin tones. Because that, mm. that's a classic problem with the show, isn't it? As Danny mentions a lot in the commentaries. Yeah. like It's difficult to, to light for everyone all at once. Yeah. So they've obviously just dialed that up a little bit for this. This is a 92 edition, but this was put together late 91 as we'll find out later in the context of interviews and stuff. And so this is a world where Red Dwarf has been going for three years rather than three zero years. Yeah. It's fucking weird. It is interesting to think that this comes at a place where there's only... Say you, you pick this up in the morning before Inquisitor airs in the evening, uh, then there's only 25 episodes of Red Dwarf that have been aired. Yeah. Yeah. 26 that night. There's not that much to say about the opening page other than analysing the picture too much. I will say in later magazines, there's more format to that inside page and there's more interesting things there. More editorial, right? Yeah, more editorial things happening. Cool. But for this inaugural edition, it's straight on to the main feature, by which I mean it takes up about half of the entire (laughs) content of the magazine, which is the comic strip for the end, or the first part of it at least. Just bearing in mind the context of the time, again, the end had never been repeated at this stage. 
Um, it had never been released on video. You didn't even have the omnibus at this stage that had the script in the back. Right. So for a lot of people, anyone that wasn't there on the 15th of February, 88, this was their first and only means of experiencing this story. Interesting. Because I was reading this going, like, I was reading this with the, the mindset of someone who's like who's watched all the repeats and everything just thinking god like they've just it feels like a bit of a cash cow just giving out the first episode of a show they're probably really familiar mm. with but they're really not going to be familiar with it at all yeah, I know. it's going to be weird reading it was doing a great public service yeah. <laughs> at the time um, so this would have been a massive selling point presumably yeah it's falsely advertising what the episode looks like, but and yeah, that, that's the main thing, isn't it? There's lots of <laughs> lots of artistic license taken on the oh, it's, it's on the sets and the backdrops, it? but it's it's so good. Oh, look, there's Starbuck in the background of this um, on the first page. <laughs> I never, yeah. I've never noticed that. I, oh shit! A much yeah. more detailed Starbuck than there is on the front. Yeah, the, I have to say, like the artwork on this strip is superb. Really, really good. One thing I've noticed, so that opening shot of Red Dwarf and um, the ringed planet, I'm assuming it's Saturn because they're not out of the solar system, and the nebula, the weird nebulary thing, uh, Mm -hmm. this carries on throughout all that. Whenever you see outside of a port window, you've got the exact same view, you've got the nebula, and you've got this exact same scene. It's just just really nicely put together, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And we've, and we've got a date, which I don't think we've ever really had, an actual date of when this is set, which I don't think mm. we've ever really had. Well, I mean, we've had loads, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, um, 2180 is unusual for... I mean, obviously, they've worked out... I mean, they seem to... Re- oh, in 2155, they seem to have worked it out, so, yeah, it wouldn't 2155, they've taken that from Stasis Leak, right? No, Infinity. Infinity Lister's date of birth is given as 2155, and it's 25. Yeah, so when it starts, but it's the first time I've seen sitting written down as like canon. Yeah, it's quite cool. And I'm assuming the artist here. I'm trying to look for clues that they were intimately knowledgeable of what the episode looks like. Mm. And I feel like he's going from memory, but maybe didn't have a reference. I don't know because everything seems like unburdened by tr- trying to copy the TV show. Right? Well, to me, it looks like as if he's running off the fact that it's series four aesthetic. Yeah. But series one episode, so it's like everything sort of like got the series four oh, you're feel right. like, with all the angled doors mm-hmm. and the cream walls and buttons and everything. It's all kind of based around the Mel Bibby look, basically, which is obviously you're going to get a tick from from Rob and Doug anyway, because it'd be like, well, yeah, that's what we wanted, you know. Like if we could do the end again, it would look like this. Also, Rimmer is wearing a tunic as a oh yeah you know, pre-accident Rimmer. Very good point. Rather than his series one uniform. Yeah, and actually, something I didn't notice, when Holly appears on the monitor, it is literally the monitor from Series 4. Yes. It's with, yeah. with, the, with the curved edges. Yes. Crazy. How did that not just, like... <laughs> yeah, that didn't that but, didn't click with me, but it just but felt so natural. But there is some other stuff as well. Like There are the hexagonal doorways and stuff later on, so yeah. they are reminiscent of the earlier series and stuff. So it's a bit of a mishmash, to be fair. This is, this, yeah, this is someone who knows... Who, who like yeah really knows and loves they've been given some, they've been given some production right? you know production yeah. stills and so, to work off and things like that I'm sure there's you know, they probably had a tape you know I'm sure there was tapes going around yeah it did exist and yeah we'll come to the specifics of that in future editions but there are reasons why we assume that the Smegazine team had copies of the tapes even when they weren't you know officially released uh, okay. ah okay but that's still to come. Mm-hmm. The bit in the middle's called issue one. <laughs> <laughs> the whole opening scene that's you know 
in is just in a grey corridor in the TV version. We end up going to this huge sort of geodome area, and yeah. like it takes place across the ship. They're walking around. They're going. They're getting a lift at one point and go to another location. Yeah, it just it's unrestrained by either the reality of the actual TV episode or even what would be possible on TV in those times for a sitcom to do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it flows really nicely, doesn't it? You can imagine them, you know, wandering along and having this conversation and getting in the lift. Like you can imagine seeing that on TV now. Yeah, you, know, you can yeah. imagine that being in the film version, or you know, if if, if this scene was recreated there. Yeah, it's uh, really cool. I, I love the fact that yeah, the, the, the sort of a new sort of realization of this scene is like. Like, if Remastered had a lot more budget, this is kind of what you'd expect it to kind of look like. Yeah. They try and make it look closer to this, than, which would be nice, but it's like, you know, you'd have to reshoot everyone on green screen and it's like. <laughs> rotoscope everyone right. out of the yeah. grey sets. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know, it, it's such a small detail, but on the, on the, on the first page, it says Corridor 159. Well, Oni's thing is Corridor 182, but I don't know if that's. Is that him? preparing for later or is that him that might be reading? the next job maybe he's looking at the little the little one that he's got in the top left and then oh, the next no. one's called 182 it looks like he's sort of like I don't know just looks like he's got the number wrong and he's just going like oh right Corridor 159 oh okay here we are yeah this is this is. alright oh, just maybe yeah, showing that, that he's extra joke. he's inept yeah. yeah so he repairs a chicken soup machine that's not faulty it's not broken She's like, huh, okay. the very first act in Red Dwarf <laughs> Just a small thing I noticed. It just kind of kind of struck me as weird because they seem to sort of literally put a, like a you know they're making it obvious that's what you want to be looking at. But for some reason, leaping ahead a little bit, I like the imagined versions of Fiji. Yes. On one page, you've got oh, Lister's amazing. version, and then Rimmer imagining the sheep on in water wings and stilts, etc. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Those sheep on stilts giving us a wave. It really put me <laughs> in mind of um, is it Captain Harris from Roger and the Rotten Trolls? The Jim Jam Jaha. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what it reminds me of. These little arms and the volcano in the background as well. Yeah, like that's a nice yeah. detail, ominously yeah. in the background. <laughs> yeah, still erupting. <laughs> What do we make of the likenesses, first of all, of Rimmer and Lister, and then we'll deal with the others separately? Inconsistent, isn't it? I mean, Rimmer is more consistent than Lister, I would say. Oh, I was mm. going to say the other way around. Really? That's interesting. Because to the point where I thought, are they even using? <laughs> are they even using Chris's likeness? Like, but but then some images, it's like, yeah, that's exactly like Chris. And others, it looks like they're trying to do something that closely approximates Rimmer, but isn't the exact same visage as, as yeah. Chris. Um, Lister feels more consistent, but still a fair bit different. I mean, it's difficult to do, I imagine. You know, like, to do likenesses, like Colin Howard's the only one I've ever been able to see who can take, a, you know, mm. a, an actual... But they're usually taken from, from reference. And, mm. you know, when you've got stuff where there's... You're basically making up an entire scene. How on earth do you make someone's yeah, face do something you've never seen before? How, you know that's that requires a, it's quite difficult to get right. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's very true. <clears throat> you you do often get very 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 wonky bits of fan art unless someone is going super style like they're leaning into a very specific style. In which case, I think it's probably easier to get away with doing your own version but if you're if you're trying too hard to be realistic and you miss the mark on yeah. 
looking like Craig and Chris, then it can get a bit weird. Yeah. What do you think, Ian? Like, do you, like I'm not having opinions on this podcast. Oh, yes, you are. No. <laughs> um, I think it's mixed. There's some where I think they are going off photos. There's like, uh, oh, there's no bloody page numbers, but a few pages in the bit where Lister's teaching Peterson how to do the coin yeah. thing and Rimmer is for some reason on the same table as them. There's a shot of Rimmer in the bottom left corner that looks like... I can't think of the photo exactly, but it really reminds me of a specific photo of Chris. So I think sometimes they were going off that. But yeah, later comics by various different artists make a virtue of the medium a little bit more and and take the opportunity to do a stylized, more sort of what I would think of a British comic style, like Beano-style versions of the characters. Right, right. Which means that they're easier to put into poses and to situations where you don't have references because you've made a cartoon version of them rather than a that's good a realistic comic version sure, of them. Sure, sure. Um, I like talking about that scene. Peterson, <laughs> in all three frames that he's in, He's, he's, he's in others as well. He's just got this constant, like, uh, face. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just seems a bit much, like, you know, he's not he's not that vacant. <laughs> <laughs> he is an officer, come on. <laughs> Catering. <laughs> <laughs> on this spread, it shows quite a lot of non-regular characters, and I think that they don't have image rights for anyone other than the main cast, yes. basically. Yeah. <laughs> Peterson, Chen and Selby sort of absolutely nothing like them they're just three generic just in fact Chen and Selby aren't even named there it's just that we know that they're Chen and Selby <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hollister vaguely looks like Mac in that he's sort of got similar hair but the face is nothing like Mac and yeah both Todd Hunter and McIntyre are completely different McIntyre is terrifying yeah, <laughs> like, is there's one frame of McIntyre where it's the <laughs> Where you saying this must be pretty spooky for everyone? Yeah, boo! Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a low angle shot looking up at him, yeah. and it's horrible. Uh, it reminds me of something out of Watchmen or something, just like um, maybe Vorshark without his mask kind of looks a bit like him. <laughs> I see they've stolen the Promised Lands idea for holograms. Yeah, straight from issue one, black and white holograms. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's interesting actually. They've actually just gone straight because like, obviously they can, so they did. Like yeah, they've gone. Yeah. With, they've obviously spoken with with Rob and Doug as to what their plans were and like how they wanted it to be realised. So it makes sense that it would be done that way. It's weird because if you were black and white, you wouldn't need the H. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> For the benefit of colourblind people, unless you're old old John Gray Majors, and then you'd you'd need the H <laughs> for people to realise there was any difference. Uh, Norman as well. They must have got the likenesses for Norman. Yeah, Norman's so good. Norman's good probably the best one, isn't he? Yeah. He's got slightly more hair than Norman. Although in some frames he doesn't like Chris Tarrant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you pointed something out to me earlier about on um, like just going back a couple of pages when um, Lister says bye, George. Uh, That was George, and then Rimmer turns off the TV, and the TV says flick. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of a comics um, faux pas there. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching that. Fuck! Oh, yeah. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> that. Good kerning, though. Like, there is a clear difference. But <laughs> from a distance. <laughs> Can't say flick or clint or bligger. Oh, actually, I never realised, actually, the, you see the just one thing before the disco, and then they actually are having the disco when basically it starts to kick in. So they actually do start to have the disco while. 
Rim was writing the report, I didn't realise. The DJ is just waiting for Hollister to finish speaking. <laughs> like, he sort of turns it on halfway through. Yeah, it's, it's only because li- as soon as Lister interrupts, he thinks, oh, that must be it then. <laughs> Put the disc up. There's an interesting point here somewhere. The in, the Everyone's favourite uh, character from the scene, Joe. Um, <laughs> that's been slightly changed. More someone who's no longer a threat to your marriages. I think Joe knows who I'm talking about, and he's and Joe is not with his wife. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so that's been changed from implying that he shagged Joe's wife to Joe knows whose wife he's been shagging. <laughs> right, <laughs> which yeah <laughs> explains why he's happier about. Yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Bit of a weird one, so yeah. Obviously, thought oh, we'll fix that. It's a bit strange. <laughs> In future editions, there's going to be like stories and jokes and all sorts of things to talk about, other than just the art. But here, it's just the art is the only yeah. thing that's really worth talking about yeah. because the sc- everything else dialogue is, is verbatim, basically. Yeah, yeah a few little a changes, few but tiny differences, but nothing. Other than the Joe one, I think that's the biggest, the only change that affects yeah. Oh, there is one thing. It does look like as if they have had access to the original scripts because Rimmer says lines that aren't in the show. Uh, were they deleted scenes? It's just little extra bits where he says, Listen, is that cigarette smoking? No, it's chicken. It's going to have to, it's going to rip my heart from its socket to do this, but I'm going to have to report you two times oh, as many minutes. Oh, uh, yeah. So that's from the, well, the, the original assembly, what we saw anyway, but yeah. I don't mm. know whether it's also on the Smegups as well, which is also possibly where they got that from, but they seem to have added this that stuff pre- in when it was actually. There's no Smegups this, at this point. This predates Smegups. All oh, right, like, okay. Well, in that sometimes. case, then it must have come from the original scripts then. Yeah. Um, Cool. Uh, oh, they watched the original. Has anyone, has anyone got a copy of the omnibus to hand? <laughs> well, yeah, they wouldn't have had the omnibus, and so they wouldn't have taken it from there. But maybe the yeah, the artist's source material was that version of the script. Or he was there for the original recording, and has a very good memory. <laughs> but that's the only one I could find that was that, that feel like as if it was slightly different, but. It's interesting. Yeah, even yeah, it's even a good spot. Even it's getting spot. this would be better than actually watching the episode. There's actually more information in here than there's in there. Mm, yeah, you get a few bonus lines. So it's weird then. The next bit is the beginner's guide to Red Dwarf, which is a good idea in case someone who doesn't know Red Dwarf has bought this. But it's a bit jarring considering that we haven't even had the main premise of the show set up in the comic because it hasn't been able to finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a bit of a weird gear change of just like, oh, so that's how it started, and now we'll tell you what the status quo is three years later. <clears throat> it's a yeah, it's a struggle that the early magazine has, is that it's it's set in a world where series five is currently airing. Yeah. And the differences between series one and series five of Red Dwarf are massive, obviously. And so it has to juggle between being set in the in the world that the viewers will recognise, the most recent current version of Red Dwarf, but it's bogged down in this comic strip that is harking right back. Mm. And so, yeah, you don't have Cap or Crichton in that. Like, Cap is going to turn up in about three issues' time in the comic strip, <laughs> right at the end of the end. Oh, God, so it's not even two parts? 
Oh, sorry for spoilers, but there's more than two parts. Oh, fucking hell. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does get... <laughs> this is one thing that I thought we might struggle with in the early stages is that <laughs> the early editions of the of the magazine are not representative of what this magazine turned into. Yes, yeah. It's going to be very interesting to track the evolution of it and to start to see things change mm-hmm. and you know, certain things be introduced and certain things be taken away. Currently, it's a work in progress of trying to sort of get its identity and to to get it onto the path of producing good stuff. It'll be interesting when we get to that in 2032. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it is kind of spoilers for the end, really. Yeah, I was going to say. Like, <laughs> what's going to happen oh, next? Oh yeah, and then well, everyone dies. <laughs> yeah, and somehow this picture, which is a still yeah. from Series 5, you know... So I don't know how many people would have bought this sight unseen. Yeah, buy a Red Dwarf magazine without actually yeah. knowing this information, this specific information on this page. It's mm. probably more than zero. I suppose it's a way of if a member of your household has bought it and you happen to pick it up. You know, mm. Yeah, oh, yeah that's true. Yeah, your dad's bought it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so you're, you're interested in what Red Dwarf is. Yeah. And also, you know, there's the thing of not everyone will have seen all the episodes. They weren't just available to us at our fingertips like they are now. So you might have seen the odd episode of Red Dwarf, you know, seen the most recent stuff and liked it, but not know absolutely every detail. It's basically, it's the opening scenes of um, Sirens. It's kind of getting you up to speed with the the pertinent information. Yeah, Yeah. fair enough. That makes sense. They explain, like, Holly and then tell you about the sex change, having just seen Holly as a male in... Yeah. In the end, and then all of a sudden having to explain why. It's, yeah, why it's because woman. because Hattie's all over the rest of the magazine. So, like, yeah. by the way, yeah, yeah, the Holly you've seen is now a she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also does an interesting thing, preempting a robberus by several years, of um, combining TV and book canon for Crichton's backstory. Oh yeah, <laughs> the whole of this is TV universe, but it mentions that Crichton was former service mechanoid to the Nova Five. An early spring clean of all the ship's most vital instruments led them to malfunctioning in unison, and it was good by Nova Five. Yeah, had not been established in the TV series at that point. Yeah, it's it's nicely written actually. This little um, introduction to everyone it feels unique or distinct from kind of other rundowns that you get of certain characters like the, the way they treat the cats like the cat should be one of dave lister's greatest admirers and it's like it's a very kind of early cat summarization of him hmm. all of the written pieces in this by the way are by uh, chris howarth and steve lyons there aren't individual credits on the on each feature but in the in the sort of credits on the inside front cover, it just says features Chris Howarth and Steve Lyons. Right. So I assume that's just everything. Yeah. yeah. So these the, so these guys are basically responsible for the majority of the output, basically all the output. All the written output at this stage. And they're, for anyone who doesn't know, the people that went on to write the Red Dwarf program guide, not long after this, actually. I think the first edition of that came out at the end of 92. Yeah. 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 Um, just a, a quick thing. I, it mentioned at the beginning that says writers for the comic strip is GNB. Is that meant to stand for anything? Is that Grant Naylor something? Grant Naylor. I assume um, Grant Naylor Burroughs, who's the artist, or Mike Butcher, who is the editor of this magazine, who we've not mentioned yet. But yeah, the the editor of this magazine throughout its entire run is a guy called Mike Butcher. Gotcha. Uh, He's now a accomplished tech journalist. I don't know a huge amount about how magazines work, especially not in the 
early 90s but the editor of a magazine might have been tweaking the copy or you know any bits like we don't know for sure that Chris Howarth and Steve Lyons wrote absolutely every single word for the rest of it there might be parts that Mike Butcher wrote himself yeah sure sure um so it's either the B in GNB is either Burroughs the artist who's filled in you know filled in some of the details or Mike Mike Butcher who would have commissioned the piece and therefore if there's any tweaks to the script it's conceivable that he would have made them okay that makes sense I just I could not figure that out at all I just well, we're just on the subject because I think this means that we'll have mentioned every single person that worked on this magazine. The uh, letters for the um, for the comic strip were Elita Fell, um, and uh, her name pops up throughout. I think for almost all, if not all, of this magazine's life. From what I can tell, she was quite a junior member of the team at Fleetway, the um, the company that made the magazine, and so she does a lot of those kind of jobs of like um, lettering. Um, layout uh, bits of design like sort of extra graphics and stuff like that right okay you'll you'll see her name pop up quite a lot over the course of the mag so then following that we get possibly the meatiest of the <laughs> written pieces um, which is an interview with Chris Barry Chris Barry's meaty piece and yeah Chris Barry's meat piece <laughs> And as you've mentioned, later on in the magazine, we'll get some behind the scenes about how this interview came about. But for the time being, let's we'll take this at face value. Uh, what did you make of it? It's interesting. It's, it's such a weird little time capsule. Mm. Well, the Sintas magazine is time capsule, obviously. But like, it's interesting when you place it in, like, especially when they start talking about the movie and all that kind of stuff, and how like Chris is like yeah. almost like, like they might not even cast him, and he wouldn't be bothered about it. Yeah, yeah, he definitely wouldn't be bothered about it. Yeah, what struck me is that this was a very different age of movie adaptations of TV. Well, maybe not so. Like you know, you you know the feature length versions you got of older sitcoms in seven in the seventies and eighties and stuff. Obviously, that was the original cast. But if anything ever went to Hollywood, like you know, it, it was obvious it must be you know recast. Whereas these days, TV shows go to Hollywood and. <clears throat> Recasting mm. is never a is never a, a discussion, you know. You don't don't yeah. recast. Um, unfortunately, you don't recast Mrs. Brown's Boys for the movie, or you know, <laughs> you don't recast the Inbetweeners, right? It's it's uh, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's odd. And he mentions as well, like what, what what is it? Quite kind of quite dismissively. Yeah, there's been talk of a film or an American version. Does he say? Or mm. and this this was literally like the ink might have been signed at this point on that. And he wouldn't know. Well, yeah, because I remember there was um, in the Man in the Rubber Mask. It's mentioned that at the wrap of series five, the last thing they shot was reshoots for Demons and Angels, um, Sans Juliet May, um, and uh, Robert broke down in tears at the end of it and was upset because he knew that he was going to America, but no one else knew at that point that the thing was even happening, yeah. and it felt like he was betraying them. So, yeah. Chris at this stage has heard rumours about an American version, and but it's at such an early stage as far as he knows that it's just a hypothetical. Yeah. Whereas actually, <laughs> it seems like um, yeah, it was all happening sort of behind his back. Deals were signed. Yeah. Actually, do I do I remember rightly that the that Chris, like that Robert mentions that Chris was given an opportunity. I'm sure that he was asked. Yeah. Oh, so he might have already been asked and might have already. After turned. the first pilot, I think they, they asked. Chris oh, I well, see. Right. Like, so it was after the first. Right, okay. I yeah. think so. We know that. We know that from Dwarf in USA. Yeah. Yar. What struck me about this interview in general is that there's so many things that we treat as assumed knowledge now in Red Dwarf fandom. 
not secret things or anything, but just like the background of the cast and the crew and, and stuff like that. But this interview, you know, it's perhaps one of the things that established that, you know, shared knowledge that we have. So they sort of say, like, oh, how did you meet Robin Doug? Did you meet on Spitting Image? And he said, oh, no, actually, we did this show called Son of Cliché yeah. a few years back, and we worked together on Jasper Carrot as well. And it's just like, you would, no one would ask Chris Barry that in an interview now, because everyone knows that story. Yeah. And it, it, it's kind of like, I guess it's pre, well, it's not pre-internet, but it's pre-widespread use of the internet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you, there's no IMDB to look up. When when Chris Barry first worked with Robin Doug, yeah. No, I yeah. mean, when, when was the first DJ? Because that was that was ninety two. So that was roughly this year as well. So that was around this time. Yeah. when I'm kind of kicked it, off. That was a, a shared Star Trek convention as well, wasn't it? Listen, we're going to come to. Okay, all of this. fair enough. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. In future podcasts, <laughs> I'm, I'm debating what to say and what to not, yeah. and what to correct you on okay. and what to not correct. Don't you tell on. me what happened with DJ because I don't know. <laughs> I just don't, I, I don't know how it turned out. <laughs> did they ever do more after that oh, initial God. first one? Yeah, what did they do for the twentieth, thirtieth uh, <laughs> anniversary? Yeah, he's in British Empire at this point, so he, he's already talking about filming a third series and. Um, Red Dwarf magazine seems surprised, like, oh, they seem to not have realised that he'd already filmed the second series at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's obviously kind of ramping up, and this is kind of probably where he's thinking, I'd like to move on soon because. Well, yeah, this seems really early on in the timeline of Red Dwarf, but yeah. there is, there's a specific quote in here where he says, maybe after next year it could be time to knock it on the head. Which was exactly what he did. Which is exactly what he because did. Because he's talking about series six as being next year, and then knocking it on the head after that. Yeah. Which yeah. So thinking about it before even like because because it, it was mentioned in the documentary that he had trouble with the schedule of six or just the work the working conditions were a bit too hectic or something. Yeah. But, but I imagine five was the same because five was a shit show, wasn't it? Like by all accounts. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Get. I think the lack of Ed by might yes. have been a factor in it because he, he does speak really positively about series five as we would expect because we know that series five turns out to be one of if not the best series but when you're Dwarf. shooting it might not be as obvious yes yeah but he does say like if if there was ever a point where it felt like we were sort of i'm paraphrasing but if, if it felt like we weren't being creative you know we were treading water and recycling ideas then i'd start to think about leaving but we're not there yet and there's loads of great stuff in this series so. Yeah, so, so he left after Polymorph 2 <laughs> yeah <laughs> post Arcogo Proctor <laughs> yeah I like that the quote said uh, do you think there's lots of scope for years and years to come and then the quote from Chris is I'm not sure about years and years to come and you can just imagine the look on his face when he says that <laughs> that's quite a good I'm point. not going to say that <laughs> At this point, how much would people know about Series 5 and how would they know about it? Well, when they were reading it, they'd know quite a bit because it would be nearing. Yeah. That, that, that's what I got confused about because I kind of forgot that this came out during Series 5. It, it was during, so yeah. yeah. I mean, people would have seen Hollow Ship and we can probably include the Inquisitor in that as well because yeah. it was literally the same day. Yeah. And so you'd know from the Radio Times or whatever, you'd know the synopsis for Terraform as well, yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the very least. Yeah. But, like, what there were, you know, there would have been other interviews knocking about and previews in newspapers and, and the TV listings, magazine and whatnot. But from 
a sort of publicity point of view, Series 5 is business as usual, really. It's not like in Series 6, the big headline is they're all on Starbug. Mm-hmm. Series 7, Rimmer's gone and Kachansky's back. Series 8, uh, you know, they're all in prison and the crew's alive. Yeah. Other series have the big spoilery details, but Series 5, from a production point of view, is completely different to Series 4, but from a viewer's point of view, it's much the same. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the specifics, particularly from later on in the series i think the main source is this very magazine yeah in features that we'll come to shortly Indeed. it's almost like would you be annoyed if you'd find i don't know no, i'd gobble it up well it, it reminds me of uh, doctor who it reminds me of the consternation that we'd have when the radio times came out with a, a big cover and like when they spoiled the human dalek remember that here mm. and we we're yeah. like ah, oh, do we want to like do we want to read it because there's going to be a bit too much in it but you kind of have to because it's like it's the big thing that you care about. <laughs> we have the discussions about this every time a new series comes along. Like yeah. we have to decide how much we cover and what you know what counts as a spoiler and what doesn't. And my philosophy is always that if it's something that the production company or you know or the creative forces behind the show are happy to be out there, then it's completely mm-hmm. it is designed for you to be consumed. Because like obviously, Rob and Doug as the license holders of Red Dwarf and the owners of Grenada Productions would have had sign-off on all this copy. Yeah, sure. exactly. So, yeah. so even though it goes into a lot of detail, goes into a lot of detail yeah. later on, that would have been okay. Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. we don't have sign-off, so we have to be a bit more careful. <laughs> <laughs> and they do call it high and low at this point as well, which yeah. is interesting. Mm. And the order's all to shit. And the order's all to shit if you look at the, uh, the other thing later on. A couple of other bits to pull out of Chris quotes I really liked a summary that he makes of the difference between Brutus and Rimmer he says Brutus was always told he was brilliant at everything and Rimmer was never told that he was brilliant at anything mm-hmm. ah. which is a really astute sort of nail on head yeah. of the difference between those two characters because they're both incompetent and they're you know they're both shit at their jobs and shit in their lives, but in very different ways, and that neatly sums up the the difference in their attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Rimmer is screwed up because he's always been told he's useless and is racked with self doubt, and Brutus's problem is that he has no self doubt and he thinks that everything he does is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Good yeah, it's good. Yeah, you can you can tell he's like in, he's enjoying Brutus, and he did like <laughs> at one point he'd done more Brutus than Red Dwarf right for quite a while. Yeah. Um, seven yeah. series. Um, most of them, well, some of them, seven or eight episodes as well. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to forget how how much how much was going on at that time with Chris. Like, how yeah, much he was, he was very, very star. busy, man. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, right at the start of the interview there, and they're talking about Spitting Image, he says that, you know, he would have been doing this series of Spitting Image, but there was a clash, but he'll be, probably be back for the next one. So, yeah. yeah. He was very much in demand. I wonder if he was. What, because it, if Spitting Image didn't take long to... Well, no, actually, Spitting Image kind of finished more mid-90s, didn't it? So I wonder if he yeah. did turn up again the next year. He probably wouldn't have done because of six, right? I haven't, I haven't actually checked the timelines there. Show notes. In the show notes. Chris <laughs> Barry's full history of every series that he's in <laughs> Spitting Image. <laughs> <clears throat> I will say as well is that his, uh, there's a, a an early sign of early to mid-90s character assassination of the episode Meltdown starting here. <laughs> yeah. Some say Meltdown was quite weak last time, but I thought it was all right. Who says Meltdown was quite weak? Fucking idiots. 
like Rob and Doug. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck do And that's what it is, isn't it? Is that they probably said that. So actually, yeah, they, he would. You know, I guess maybe he's picking up what what Rob and Doug like whinged about about it if they didn't like it. I don't know. Mm. Who has said meltdown is bad at this point? Yeah. Like a few reviews in a. You know, you're not reading yeah. forums, are you? <laughs> no. Yeah, it's hard to know where the fan feedback was coming from. Yeah. Um, I think he was on news because... I think he was stalking. <laughs> well, some members of the Red Dwarf team were. Because <laughs> no one's going to go up to him in the street and say, you're, you're that smeghead. Hey, where's your H? Hey, oh, Meltdown was a bit shit. Yeah, <laughs> Stasis Leak was a bit odd, wasn't it? Yeah, that intrigued me. The fact that Stasis Leak, you know, from our perspective... You know, all of series two is brilliant, obviously, but Stasis yeah. League never it's never occurred to me that Stasis League would be considered lesser no. of of that run or, or compared to any Red Dwarf mm, that Stasis League would be would be considered something that was an odd one out, as he puts it. There's a very obvious odd one out from series two. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not Stasis League. Again in nine ninety two though, I don't know whether how much of that was yeah, it's so strange. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I do wonder. I do wonder what the what the discourse was and where the discourse came from. Uh, I imagine he's mainly they didn't have Discord. <laughs> well, no, they didn't have Discord no. for start. So I imagine he's just reading reviews, right? I don't know how many reviews would have gone into that depth. Well, like... yeah, no. And also, Red Dwarf would have never reviewed well. I don't think. I don't think. Like, I would say if you pick any random newspaper review of Red Dwarf, there would be at least. 50% sniffiness in it yeah for, for sure like even if it's a positive review because no one and possibly some racism yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah not in the enlightened perfect 90s <laughs> it was the late 80s for the main <laughs> yeah the yeah they were the real horrible yeah <laughs> early 90s full of optimism labor were about to take charge yep so look out for next week's uh, next podcast news. <laughs> yeah, we talk about our glorious happened. socialist future. We're all right. <laughs> so just to, just to clarify, these were these were a monthly thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I keep saying week because I'm an idiot. It's quite quite a feat, isn't it? Really doing this every month. I mean, it's hard. Well, it's we'll hard see. enough writing a magazine every quarter. Should we move on? Yes. Yeah. We move on to Holly's Amazing Facts. Holly's Amazing Facts. <laughs> is this a regular feature? I'm not at liberty to divulge. Okay. <laughs> Basically, if the joke is that everything's bullshit apart from one really specific yes. thing, I'm kind of on board with it. I am totally on board. I am 100% on board with this page. This is I... my favourite kind of expanded universe, like... Bullshit, basically. I love it. I like it. I, I do. I do like this. This, this does. This, I thought this would annoy me, but it hasn't. Because the thing is, the punchline is one of the best things ever. It's amazing. Like, and Hattie's Hattie's Holly having that connection to Norman's Holly as well. Like, she's still feeling the effects of of a football. It's a funny old game, and she's got all this knowledge still in her head. Oh, it's, oh, it's so good. Yeah, I like. Yeah, the very the very specific. For anyone who hasn't read along, the joke is that she does little facts on six subjects. Five of them are all made up, <laughs> like yeah. not true. And then there's a bio on Kevin Keegan that is spectacularly accurate. But it's not even that's not even all the joke. But the joke is how detailed it goes into Kevin Keegan. <laughs> yes, it's so he really... talks about his first ever game <laughs> and what the result was. It was uh, him moving from um, the wing to midfield, which felt more comfortable. <laughs> so... that's, the, that's what that's what got me was the specificity of the uh, the accuracy of it. That's what got me. And then right, right at the end. Kevin Keegan never travelled in space. <laughs> Which, actually, do you remember it's there was a true. Twitter account? <laughs> I don't know if it's still going, but there was a Twitter account called Galactic Keegan, 
which was a parody <laughs> of Kevin Keegan written as as an astronaut. <laughs> I don't know if it's still there, but I'll try and dig out a link if it is. I wonder if the person behind that account read this magazine and then image stuck in funny. there. So I don't know if this stuck out to anyone else, but I'm going to read one of these in the voice of another comedy character that immediately came to hand uh, came to mind when I was reading this. I'll see if I can do the impression, see if you know who I'm who I'm doing. <clears throat> I'm not hopeful. Neil Armstrong, Yuri Gagarin and Flash Gordon are all well known astronauts. So is Dan Dare. The first dog in space was not a fully qualified astronaut. The first man in space was Russian, but the first man on the moon was uh well he wasn't Russian. In fact he wasn't even a dog. Professor Brian Cox. No, Philomena Kunk. Philomena Kunk. <laughs> oh, and like the whole thing is exactly Philomena Kunk. Yeah, it it's is. amazing. <laughs> you can cut that impression out if you want. But no. the thing is, you could easily re- you could read them. You could also read the. Uh, you could also read it in in Brian Cox's voice, and it would just make yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> the solar system is like this big system, see, based around a solar thing in the middle. I remember its name in a minute. <laughs> it's got eight planets in it and some moons around some of them. Oh, and there's an, it's like as if he's got dementia, <laughs> like he's got some problems. Pluto is the name of Mickey Mouse's dog. <laughs> so that's quite interesting. <laughs> and Pluto was a planet back then. Yeah, it was interesting because as soon as it said eight planets, I was like, that's right. And then yeah. she got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, how did they know? <laughs> so she got it wrong right, and then she got it right wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, Holly is from the future, remember? Oh, that's true, yeah. Yeah. Uh... yeah. Anyway, this is really promising. I'm really looking forward to the other original bits of fiction that are in this magazine. (laughs) Welcome to (laughs) them. But first, we have an advert. Ah, I didn't really look at this. (laughs) Well, there we go. We're going to analyse everything. Like We're the the website that reviews the stickers that come on the front of the DVDs. We're going to look at the adverts. Do you remember when we reviewed DVDs? (laughs) Oh, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) This is an advert for the complete Judge Dredd. The Law in Order, which I think is an excellent subtitle. <laughs> it is good. But yeah, I no most notable thing about it is that this is an advert for another magazine that the same company publishes. So presumably they've not actually got any ad revenue for this. This is kind of filling the space where adverts would be. Yeah, presumably, yeah, the ad buys will happen after the first... They, they, they know what their um, circulation numbers are for the first issue. Yeah. Yeah. Also, 90p for a... Um, yeah, what is Monthly that? Magazine. Yeah, that's pretty good. Of course, this was pre-decimalisation. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is £1.50, the Red Dwarf magazine. Oh, that's yeah, quite yeah. hefty for 90s, actually. Well, it's, what is it, 40-something pages? Yeah. It is exactly 40 pages. I mean, I wouldn't have had the pocket money for this when I was nine. Monthly? Well, you'd have to sort of, yeah. you'd have to forego well, a couple of weeks' worth of Beano. <laughs> I didn't read the Beano, Beano was shy, yeah. Hey! <laughs> Rude. Um, Turn over your pages. This is the biggie. This is the Series 5 preview. Mm. This is the thing um, that I would have opened up and just been like, this This would be the most exciting shit ever. Yeah. It's like when you get a Doctor Who magazine, the first thing you go for is the production notes and then skip to the episode previews and stuff. Yeah, yeah. This is exactly it. Now, this makes me think, was this intended to actually be released before Series 5 had started airing? Like, do you think they may have got a bit delayed? Quite possibly, yeah. because, yeah, it, it's written as if you've not seen the first two episodes, which 
is a good thing because the first episode in this is um, High and Low, as it was known, which didn't actually air until week five in the actual series. Yeah. So if they'd have said, oh, of course, we've already seen High and Low, and then here's a preview of Hollow Ship, you'd have been really disappointed. (laughs) Incoming producer Hilary Bevan-Jones. Like, it's interesting that, you know, they're acknowledging all the production shuffling. I guess that makes sense. But it's so interesting to see Juliet May joining without the knowledge of how it's going <laughs> yeah because yeah now whenever Juliet May's name is in connection we we know how it will that ended up like there's no assumption here that the incoming producer Hilary Bevan Jones there's no implication that it, it's going to be a one-off that she's the producer yeah which is what it turned out to be yeah at the time when this preview was written presumably behind the scenes they'd already you know got rid of Juliet May and carried on with Rob and Doug directing, but that's not referenced here at all. So they're writing this in the context of a set visit that they seem to have done during the filming of Terraform, and then the week after as well, so... Yeah, which means that Juliet May was still around. Was still there, yeah, because they mentioned... I mean, later on in an interview, they mentioned Rob fucking off to have a meeting, in inverted commas, with Juliet May, probably to tell her what POV means again. (laughs) Saka. (laughs) Oh, Saka, yeah, something crazy was going on. Um, yeah, because that was exactly that was exactly the scene that there was they were having problems with 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 Craig and Robert. Well, yeah, it was a VT, yeah. wasn't it? So it was, it was like, oh yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, is is that something they had to? No, they had to hastily re re edit. Um, sorry, we're jumping ahead a bit here, but they had to hastily re edit the the typing scene, didn't they? Yeah, they didn't have to hastily re edit. Maybe they did have to hastily re edit the Crichton VT, cutting them in half. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> that's for the interview later on. <laughs> really interesting thing that leapt out to me straight away right towards the start of this preview they're joined this year by a number of guests including Jane Horrocks and Sarah Stockbridge firstly notable that Sarah Stockbridge was famous enough to warrant a mention mm, like yeah. alongside Jane Horrocks of yeah. like someone you know is that big a star when she's not really <laughs> like you'd have thought Timothy Spall or Maggie Steed or Jack Doherty would be the ones that you'd mention maybe they didn't but know Sarah Stockbridge at the time was a, like a, a model who was quite famous at the time um, she's one of the handmaidens in um, Terraform. However, rumours of Brian Blessed's involvement in the show were apparently unfounded. There was rumours of Brian Blessed being a red dwarf. I don't remember anything no. ever about this. <laughs> apparently so. Well, the evidence is here in black and white. So, which characters from Series 5 would Brian Blessed have played? And can Danny please do the impression <laughs> of <laughs> The Inquisitor immediately springs to mind. The timelines have been knitted. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know that. All that remains now is to remove your physical form. <laughs> uh, interestingly, <laughs> in the preview of Quarantine, complications arise with the discovery that the Doctor has already contracted a hologram virus, making him totally insane. So at this stage, they're assuming Dr. Landstrom is male. Yeah. Yes. So that could be Brian Blessed. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. That seems like they've got a, a synopsis and no other information and they have made an assumption. I say, that could be Brian Blessed. Okay. <laughs> I've got to twinkle, do Brian twinkle. Blessed doing a German accent. Are we doing that? Oh, <laughs> no, just Brian Blessed. Twinkle, twinkle, little eye. Now it's time for you to die. see i knew that this was worth doing this uh, series for this is 
the best thing that Danny's ever done. And that's saying something. That's the whole point of the game for listing you twonk! <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting the way that back to reality is treated mm-hmm. here. Because there's a reasonable level of detail, nothing that spoils the outcome of the plot, nothing that spoils any endings or anything, but it's relatively detailed synopses of all the other episodes. But back to reality, all they say is, you know, it's a very different type of episode and there's uh, some big surprises for Red Dwarf fans. It does give away the detail. It starts with the destruction of Starbug and the entire crew. Yeah. But it doesn't yeah, it avoids saying too many obvious things about about it, reality. It probably does cross a line of saying a bit too much, but compared to the other episodes it's mm. it's positively taciturn. <laughs> Although I just realised that the article is accompanied by a big picture of Dwayne, Jake, Sebastian and uh, and Billy. That's true. Oh yeah. But then you wouldn't know that that was correlating to that episode, would you? Yeah, that's true. What would you make of that picture? It's like, what the fuck Imagine is that? Imagine what you'd think, yeah, I was yeah. going to say. <laughs> when that picture came out, it'd be similar to that set photo where, where we first saw Carbug. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It's a cross between that and the fact that the main publicity image for Series 12 was the one where everyone's Crichton. Oh, yeah. Of like, <laughs> yeah. That, that comes out and you're like, eh, what? <laughs> I guess that's happening. Another interesting point, when they're talking about high and low, they suggest that both sets of copies are trying to kill the crew, including the high ones. Mm. So each one complete with a, a, with a set of crew members who are determined to wipe out their opposite numbers. Mm. And the high, the high crew don't want to wipe anyone out. <laughs> no. <laughs> they want to give Dance. people herbs and a balm for their refreshment. Yeah. A balm. <laughs> Dangerous animal. <laughs> <laughs> also the fourth episode is called terraform a play on words on the terraforming concept introduced in the film aliens yeah aliens invented terraforming yeah. everybody <laughs> i think it was popularized in that i think a lot of people yeah. like when you've heard about terraforming it's, it's, it's that yeah. yeah that's how that's how narrow science and science fiction was in the early 90s i guess it's like you know you won't have heard of terraforming because Brian Cox said it in, a, in his latest space documentary, or you know, you've watched it on YouTube. You hear about terraforming from the big sci-fi films, and they had only existed yeah. for about you know ten years in that way. Readers, please note: this is the order in which these episodes were filmed. They may well be broadcast in a different order, just to keep you on your toes. They were spoilers. They were, <laughs> and then they were released on VHS in a different order, just to keep us on our toes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going through. I don't think. Oh no, the Inquisitor correlates to the place where it was in the series. None of the others, apart from Back to Reality. Yeah, yeah, Back to Reality. Right but yeah, that was. I mean, it, that would be ludicrous if you ever tried to put Back to Reality in any other place in the <laughs> yeah. series. I will. Uh, I will mention this where, like, it kind of spoils its own plot. Where it's like, after it mentions the Inquisitor, and just says the crew have to act fast if they wish to avoid being erased from history. Presumably they do for the following episodes. It's, yeah. like, it's like, dude, wait, really? There's no jeopardy yeah, in, the, don't, in the mid-series run. Don't hang a lampshade on it. Like we know. <laughs> well, that's the series five preview, and yeah, it's it's just fascinating to imagine a world where you you don't know absolutely every single detail about something like series five, which is so iconic. I mean, for me, yeah. it was the first series I saw. And I watched the VHS, you know, the taped off air VHS over and over and over again. But imagine picking this up like just a few months before I did that and, and not knowing 
anything about them other than the scant details that you get here. Yeah. So the first time you saw Red Dwarf, you had absolutely no preface as to what the show was or anything. There's no, you didn't read these magazines or anything like that when you were. No, the first episode I saw was Back to Reality, which is not the ideal introduction in many you ways, peaked. but it seemed to do the trick. <laughs> yeah. It's all downhill from it's there. All downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did read some of the magazines at the time and got them as they came out, or rather my sister did and I stole them off her, right, you know, which was okay. a theme with early Red Dwarf consumption for me. And the early 90s in general of, for most kids. <laughs> yeah. My, my copy of Omnibus ha, uh, has in it a print-sticked-on sheet of paper from Arrowvale uh, High School saying awarded to Emma Symes for 50 <laughs> merit points. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, turning the page, we see a massive full-page photo of the cat, which I think, judging by costume, is Terraform. Yeah. Because it's the yellow... It's the one they coloured in. Yellow variant yeah. of the zebra print. Yeah. So that would that would have been a new photo at the time. Yeah. yeah. That's probably all that there is to say about it. Yeah. Because next up, we have another piece of original prose fiction. Could you pilot Red Dwarf? Mm. Which goes on. Oh my God, it goes on. <laughs> three pages. Thoughts? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, some of it's good, and there are some good jokes in here, but there are few and far between. Okay, here's a question. Has anybody, apart from yes and no, has anybody understood a single word of Cat's answers? The font is not ideal. The font is not good at all. I have had to zoom in and read it. <laughs> well, you put more effort into reading Cat's answers than I do. Uh, that's something also that you can only do with PDF. If you've got a physical copy of the magazine, you just have to move your head closer <laughs> to your chest. <laughs> and I know that it is necessary for the, in inverted commas, flow of the joke but changing the order that everyone answers all the time. Oh my god, yeah. I have to really concentrate, yeah. That annoyed me. Yeah, it depends on who's got the punchline to that particular exactly. joke. For that. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone's not reading along, it's like a Space Corps, JMC, whatever aptitude test that the characters are filling in in a jokey way. It's basically, it preempts um, the Red Dwarf Survival Manual, yeah. which was written by Paul Alexander, came out in 1996. Was it that or was it the log that had this? Bits of both, actually. Yeah. Is it sort mm. of come over the two, but the the survival manual definitely had like sort of training exercises um, that they'd filled in, like questionnaires like this that they filled in. I think what I think what might be bringing to mind is the fact that sort of like writing in specific fonts depending on which character's talking was kind yeah. of that's the that's yeah. But but at least in the survival man, manual they were legible and <laughs> they were all in different colours, which helped to differentiate it oh, as well. Yeah, they're, they're working with a limited palette by the looks of things. So Crichton's sex is Hoover 2000, which is probably the best <laughs> joke out of the two sex uh, specific sex questions. Yeah. <laughs> Although Crichton answering Sea Reg for age was quite good. Yeah. <laughs> it's very British. Very, very British. For younger listeners, <laughs> the age of a car used to go in alphabetical order on its number plate. <laughs> and Sea Reg would have been quite old. Early 80s, maybe. My dad had known it straight off the top of his head. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah it, it, it spreads over three pages, this, and it's very <laughs> dense, and <laughs> it's difficult. Yeah. I like the conceit that Rimmer is getting the scutters to write his answers, and sometimes they're pissing about with him. It's like they're all in the same room sort of talking to Holly, and it's like it's like the transcription of what they're doing, rather than everyone writing individually, you know, like... Yeah. Yeah. Everyone can see everyone else's answers. Yeah, they're all reacting to each other. Yeah. Lister's favourite colour is boxer short brown. <laughs> so <laughs> shit. 
Shit, bro. <clears throat> it's the problem that we run into a lot when we talk about <laughs> Red Dwarf and specifically things that aren't necessarily written by Rob and Doug. Yeah. Of having to distill these quite complex, in most cases, characters down to a series of you know shorthand comedic traits. Yeah. It doesn't work if you analyse it at all, which, you know, welcome to G&T. <laughs> but they, out of necessity, they have to just make Lister, every answer is what a slob would say, every Rimmer answer is what a, a nerd would say or a coward mm. would say, and, you know, Crichton mm. is just obsessed with cleaning, Cat is just obsessed with himself. Which isn't yeah. even particularly Crichton at this point in time cleaning is not his like he's already well into the science officer side of things even if he is conflicted about certain things at certain points it's like he yeah. isn't just the the cleaner there's actually a decent a decent one here question 11 orange apple banana potato pear which is the odd man out well for a start you you wouldn't say odd man out in this question because it's kind of setting up the punchline but like yeah river goalpost head mr arnold <laughs> i like they all just said that immediately straight yes away, like, yeah all at once time. just like making the same joke yeah objection you're on the leading question yeah it was yeah <laughs> That's a little bit overruled a little bit inelegant, let's say. The situational questions are good, because basically it's like, for the first one, everyone has their individual kind of response. I, it's a cool idea, yeah. but again, I, I find this so difficult to pass. Like, there's no, like, stand around and panic, and then, oh, whose is that font? Oh, it's the cat. Haha. <laughs> yeah, at this stage, they've dropped, because like, for most of it, there's the initials of the characters as well, <laughs> <Yeah>. to give <laughs> you a clue. <laughs> this one just drops it. <laughs> there's no immediate, just like, oh, that's the joke. He, yeah, it, it's very slow. It's a very slow, sluggish thing to process. I think. Mm. Um, worth a try. And on more than one occasion, they refer to Holly as a bimbo, which I don't like. No. But nineties. Very much. Yeah. So. It's her fault for having blonde hair, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and the cat referring the same word associated with woman's pussy. It's like, yeah, I get he's a cat, but that's not me, wouldn't say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's not Mrs. Slocum. <laughs> the four types of women sex, mistress, mother, pussy <laughs> Lister should say Kachansky not sex like that is not his character that is mm. never his character well apparently his favourite thing to read is whopping bazookas monthly <laughs> yes, of mm. course <laughs> I think it's a porn magazine written by the carry on team <laughs> the sense of things the, um, that Rimmer is more likely to be reading that yeah. But, well, actually, maybe not because he he prefers like um, Renaissance muscle women. <laughs> well, yeah, muscle women. Oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> muscle and, women monthly. I was going to say t- tasteful point. Renaissance art nudes as well in his. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it's all over the fucking shop. Yeah. It you know <clears throat> it feels like filler. Mm. They had yeah. a good go at it. They had a good stab. What three and pages is excessive? <laughs> it's fairly. It's fairly. Um, unique as well because like you say like we, we hadn't had the survival guide log 1996 mm. hadn't had mr bean's diary at this point no <laughs> it's true this is fair that you would have seen in other sort of comedy spin-off printed material mm. books and whatnot but nothing for red dwarf at this stage like other than the novels the only red dwarf material that existed was the tv show there was no extraneous bits at this point. In fact, we'll see, we'll get you know news and then reviews of all the stuff that we you know we now take for granted as part of the Red Dwarf oeuvre, 
Um, loads of it is released during the time that the magazine is on air, but the magazine sort of came before most of it. Yeah, mm. this is the first ever bit of published Red Dwarf that's not Robin Doug. Yeah, it's very so true. Yeah, should have known back then that it was a mistake. I wonder what people thought of it at the time, actually. Yeah. Stuff like that, probably not very kindly. Old school Red Dwarf fans are, are, are not very generous. No, we're not. <laughs> well, I mean, old old school Red Dwarf fans, yeah. like they're from the beginning. Old school Red Dwarf fans. Yeah. As uh, Howarth and Lyons proved with their bizarre uh, attitude towards uh, Smegups and Smegups. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got our own back on them now, <laughs> presuming that they wrote this. <laughs> but if we flip the page, we have something completely different. Mm-hmm. Another piece of prose fiction. This is a feature called Fixing Reality, and it's an interview with Professor Nida Lewis, the main force behind the creation of the incredible successful Better Than Life VR game. Now, before we get into it, obviously... The creator of Better Than Life is called Dennis McGee. Yeah. And he's a spotty <laughs> nerd. Oik in Better Than Life. So Dennis McBean. McBean. Yeah. I was mixing it up with um Debbie McGee. Debbie McGee. <laughs> <laughs> so easy to get those two dudes mixed up. I think I was thinking of George McGee, he was always <laughs> passing wind and blaming it on me. <laughs> but it is actually quite an interesting little interview with this because it is Is it though? What is it for? I know it's fan fiction, and I've always had a, I've always struggled, let's say, with fan fiction. What I think it is, is an attempt to discuss sort of real life scientific or pseudo scientific theory in a vaguely Red Dwarf context. So it's a kind of an attempt to say, well, this is a magazine for the TV show Red Dwarf, which is a science fiction show. Yeah. We don't quite have enough actual Red Dwarf content for 40 pages worth of this particular issue. Let's have something that, you know, the readers might be interested in, this science type concept, and do it in a way that relates very tangentially to Red Dwarf. Yeah, so this is someone, whoever wrote this, this is their kind of pet subject, and they were like, oh, this is a good opportunity for me to get my thoughts down on this, I guess. Mm. Yeah, because it's quite forward-looking, isn't it? With like virtual reality, and I think stuff. it is. That, that's, what, they, that's what kind of struck me. Hilariously enough, they say yeah. in the early 21st century there was direct brain uh, interfacing with virtual reality, not this uh, virtual reality headsets with physical inputs. And funnily <laughs> enough, it's only just now where that part of virtual reality has actually got to the point where it's good enough, yeah. um, and <laughs> there is no brain interfacing yet. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, it's on its way. I do find bits of it interesting and in like the talk about how the brain has shortcuts so that actual reality is just what we perceive of reality is just our our version of it based on what we sense around us and you know it's not it's subjective and it's going to be different for the people. Yeah. yeah. I think it might have been more successful if it was just a straight sort of Article. essay about it. The interviewer in inverted commas really hammers on about I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean by guess. Could you yeah. say a few yeah. more paragraphs? Yeah. Yes, but you said guess. What do you mean? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, as an article, yeah, maybe maybe a bit better. Yeah, sorry, I've been a bit mean on it. It's like it's trying shit at a time where Red Dwarf wouldn't have had anything like this. I imagine there would have been a lot of Doctor Who fanfic, a lot of Star Trek fanfic, but this is kind of almost inaugurating Red Dwarf into like um its position as like one of the sci-fi greats because you know mm. it's getting all the flim-flam around that you know that fan communities do yeah the the magazine was a pioneer for so much of the way that it certainly shaped me personally but i think the wider fandom in general of thinking a bit deeper about red dwarf being mm. interested in what goes on behind the scenes expanding out the fictional universe and making the real 
you know the real life stories behind Red Dwarf more accessible. Yeah, it was the first in a long line of things to do that, and it's kind of you know leads directly to G and T and what we're doing today. It's all the same kind yeah. of ethos. This was the first place to do it, but as this is the earliest iteration of this magazine, it makes a few stumbles along the way, and doesn't do things in as quite an elegant way as it would later. Yeah, yeah. Such as this piece of shit. <laughs> no, it's good. It's not the worst thing. We've already gone past. Like everything else in this magazine is incredibly accomplished for a first issue. Like holy fuck, it's packed. Yeah. Especially considering almost half the page count is taken up by just one comic strip. There's a lot packed in still. Yeah, exactly. There's no advert padding either. Not really. There's two, what two adverts? Mm. But what is next? The next feature after oh. fixing reality is caption competition. <laughs> and this is your first opportunity, dear listeners slash readers. To get involved. <laughs> so we're going to put the picture from the caption competition up in the show notes. And we want you to come up with, as it says here, take a good look at this ostensibly serious picture and try to think of the funniest, zaniest and downright smegtastic caption or speech balloon for it. The picture for the record is of Rimmer in his gingham hat and dress uh, with Mr. Flibble. And also, you know, bearing in mind that the timing of this magazine coming out yeah. that's probably the first time people have seen that yeah. <laughs> this wasn't so like for us point, yeah. yeah for us we look at the caption competition and go oh there's a picture of Rimmer and Mr Flibble but for them they're like what the fuck is this yeah for extra points NB not actually extra points I don't think we're marking anyone <laughs> <laughs> try and do this from the point of view of someone that yes. doesn't know that he says Mr Flibble's very angry or that it's even called Mr Flibble Mr Flibble's very angry what are you, a bootleg t-shirt? Yes. <laughs> that is a perfect description of me. <laughs> so write us your caption for this picture from the point of view of someone that's never seen Quarantine and never seen this picture before. What would you have made of it if yeah. all you knew was that that was Rimmer fascinating. and nothing else? And we'll see the actual 90s idiots responses in a few issues by the looks of it. Third issue. The best entries will be printed in our third issue, and so that is when we will also um, go through our uh, our readers' submissions. Very nice, very nice. It's all falling into place. In the meantime, if we turn over Leaf, we see Superman and Batman in the second of only two ads in this uh, magazine. And yeah, you mentioned earlier, Capsy, that there was a DC thing. It is, but it's also another... Uh, Fleetway magazine. Ah, yes, okay. Fleetway published the UK editions of DC Comics at this time, so it's another internal advert. That's fascinating. Are Fleetway still going? Were they bought by IDW or something? Yes, yeah. They were were swallowed up not long after this magazine folded in a couple of years' time. I mean, it always always folded, didn't it? It was made out of paper. Because Fleetway was the guys who did Sonic yes. the Comic and that kind of stuff. They did they? do Sonic the Comic and shared um, a few members of the creative team yeah. later on, which we'll come to. But first, the Red Dwarf fun page. Yes. Which I thought was the question page, so I skipped over this, not realising that <laughs> wasn't. Yeah. I thought that as well, and then I realised that I was like, what is this crossword? Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit easier than the one we put out. Three across is Herring. The answer to that is either Edwin or Captain, but it doesn't seem to fit. Or no, Mitch. I mean, <laughs> CPTN, maybe. <laughs> so, yes, this is a, a parody of a puzzle page. I feel the... like a waste opportunity. <laughs> yeah, people like us would have preferred an actual puzzle page. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's Cat is set across words and all the answers are fish. 
Yeah. And Crichton's got a quiz called Lying Can Be Fun, where it's pictures of fruit and the answers are. This feels very yeah. Python, this whole thing. Yeah. Thing of like, oh, the answers are given on page 58, and then like the actual answers are, ah, the answers are on page 58, all I was lying. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also one, Jesus Christ, I was reading the, the, the Crichton's Lies thing, and it's like, obviously you've got the, the, the basic stuff you get from the thing, and then you get a large collection of Doctor Who fans wearing scarves, dressing as Cybermen, and attending a convention in the University Hall. And then a particularly impressive ice skating demonstration given by Jane Torval and Christopher Dean. And number five is just bizarrely violent. The assembled cast of neighbours being machine gunned to death in a public place. <laughs> like, dude! Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> okay, can we try and intuit what the author's opinion of neighbours was and possibly I mean, Doctor Who as well? I mean, holy shit! Fuck! Yeah, that, that's really I mean, sniffy well, about Doctor Who fans. Like, was this was this kind of early, early like nerd nerd battles or something before everything was one big thing? Well, this is presumably Howarth and Lions because it's a feature. Yeah, yeah. and Howarth and Lions are massive Doctor Who fans. They oh, yeah. had they wrote a program guide for Doctor Who as well as for Red Dwarf. I think they certainly had some Doctor Who related books published. Interesting. So. It might be a self-mocking thing, but also I think it is tied into the uh, nerds thing. Yeah. Even, you know, the nerds were inside the house at the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's such a... Those two uh, other ones, Jane Torvald and Christopher Dean and the cast of Neighbours. Welcome to 1992, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've just had the Bolero about a year or so earlier, and Neighbours is still one of the biggest shows on TV. The last thing they'll be expecting yes. is to put in a reference <laughs> to the Bolero. <laughs> I think that's covered. The next page, yeah. big, big picture of Lister. I think it's four rather I than I think it's three. series four. No, I think it's four, more... he had a big furry hat. Oh, I don't know. It's a picture of Craig. Yeah. It's a picture it of looks Craig like Craig, polymorph. It looks like they're, they're looking for the polymorph. But Let's say it's that. Let's say it's that. <laughs> in the but the main, <laughs> the main feature... All right. The Red Dwarf Studio Report. Oh, this is the this is the best bit. Of the, this, of is the this is the this is the biggie. So yeah, as we've kind of obliquely referenced a few times so far, there's also there's quite a lot of meta references within this Studio Report. To basically, it was on this visit to Shepperton Studios that the authors, presumably Howarth and Lyons, basically got all the material for this particular edition of this magazine. And so they talk about some sort of making of bits sort of buried within what is a st- was supposed to be, you know, here's here's what's going down in Shepperton as they're making series five. But it gets bogged down at times of it's just sort of some of the logistics of putting the magazine together. Oh like, we were gonna talk to Rob Grant, but then he had to go and do a big meeting. So we went back the next day and they gave us a spare office, which was great, but I left my tape recorder there. So then <laughs> when I needed to talk to Chris Barry, I had to go back and get the tape recorder and bring it down. But don't worry, <laughs> we've got an interview which you've already read and uh... <laughs> yeah. I wonder who got the power pack. <laughs> it's funny reading this in the context of like how many set reports have we written at this point? A lot. <laughs> yeah. And um like spotting the similarities but also the I find it really interesting that he was disillusioned with seeing movie stages, whereas I had mm. exactly the opposite reaction. Were we more aware of what T V was like before we saw it? We didn't have the illusions to shatter. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what, what it was is. gonna be like. Yeah. Yeah. Because things like, you know, walking to, like, going to Shepperton and, like, being told, oh, this was, the, this stage was, you know, 
actually it's it's more when I went to Elstree, you know, I think you told me like, oh you you're we're in um Endor, you know. Yes. The bit on the side is being yeah. filmed in the same where Endor was. And yeah. I, that blows my mind. I love shit like that. Yeah man. Bit on the side was the same studio as Labyrinth. Okay, Labyrinth. well That's close it. enough. Yeah, you sorry, you used to work, yeah. My old office was used to be Jim Henson's workshop at one point. Oh, fucking, my fucking god! Yeah, see, that's <laughs> the thing. It's like history, history in yeah. the walls and in the floors of a place. That's it. I, yeah. uh, I love that. Yeah. In Elstree's case, in the grass verge, uh, there's a there's a Millennium Falcon fucking buried in there. Asbestos uh, Millennium Falcon buried <laughs> in there that they oh, couldn't get rid of. Did they, not, still... did they not dig that up when they were mm. doing something for um, episode seven? I think there was some there was some coverage about it. I think there was, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah I think maybe they just put Google it back. Like a... <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but anyway, but these guys were going to Shepparton. Yeah, and they didn't seem to have any issues finding the uh, finding the entrance. <laughs> Skipping forward a bit, there's a couple of marked differences between this recording and our experiences. First of all. There's a, eager fans were there early watching dress rehearsals on a monitor, which is yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like that was fuck. fucking doable. Yeah, that comes from a, presumably a very well organised BBC shoot, um, like running like clockwork, rather than maybe a slightly more hectic kind of you know modern modern dwarf shoot that that we had. I don't know, but I I wouldn't have thought you'd want. The fans to see that stuff, yeah, like odd. surely you'd want to keep the you'd want them to have their first experience of everything to be the one that you're recording. Yeah, surely maybe they just didn't care about stuff like that. Yeah, I, it just feels like it's like obviously it's a different time when news cuts spread as quickly. Um, mm. So I suppose people were kind of trusted just to you know just tell your friends kind of thing. Like it wasn't going to get any further than maybe the guy in the pub. Yeah. Maybe they didn't think of the show like highly enough, like because with 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 ten especially, like there there was an effort made of just like well, I guess they didn't cover up the they, they covered up the sets more in like eleven and twelve, didn't they? But like, but then uh, then again, they did go to the effort to cover up the skeletons and stuff in Crichton. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's an odd one, and it's maybe it's a halfway house because that example was in an Ed By and Paul Jackson production. And this is a Hilary Bevan Jones and Juliet May production, and no disrespect to them, but from everything that we know, it was not as well. I I can't imagine anything being as well run as something that's been run by Paul Jackson and Ed By. So I maybe in Paul Jackson's day he wouldn't have let anyone anywhere near. Yeah, but yeah. here they were like, oh yeah, whatever, come yeah. on. It's fine. In this case, like at the very least, differently run. If, differently if, if run. I think so. Another difference is that apparently the cast were endlessly badgered for autographs throughout the whole process. Yeah. I mean, what the fuck? How does that work? I don't. I don't know. Like, during it, during a take. Yeah. There's all these smeg ups that we don't see where they were interrupted by just someone coming on with a pen. <laughs> I mean, it's it's, it's you you joke, but like it sounds like as soon as the recording wrapped. It was like yeah. there was fans everywhere, and like everyone was trying to go and get pissed, and the and the fans going to the bar with the cast and crew afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's something that's sort of been conflated because, like, whoever this was, Howarth Lions, both or neither, 
were invited to be there. They were, you know, there as press, effectively. Yeah. yeah. So maybe they went to the bar afterwards because they were guests of the production and there were other people there that were also production guests, be they, you know, friends of family or yeah. whatever it might be. So maybe he didn't mean, like, every fan who went to the recording got this privileged yeah. extra stuff. Maybe he was, you know, he was access all areas, so yeah. he saw all this extra stuff. But even so, <laughs> it seems odd. Because, like, we, you know, it's no secret, we have been on set visits to the new Red Dwarf, uh, the more recent Red Dwarf, as part of the fan club. Yeah. Except, uh, I don't think Capsi actually went. No, I haven't, uh-huh. I haven't been Well, me and Danny have. And while we were invited there and we were guests and everyone was perfectly happy for us to be there it was quite tightly controlled as to where we could and couldn't go and what we could and couldn't see as you'd expect mm. because yeah. we're we're fans of the show and it's what I'd expect from anyone that's not um, a member of the production team because like I have worked on events where you've got members of the press I was, I was at one this week as we were recording for a, a show that I'm working on where it was four journalists visiting the studio of this show and it was very, very, very carefully managed mm-hmm. as to what they could and couldn't see. No bits of paperwork lying around which would give anything away that they wouldn't want to know. Um, they were ushered into a certain area. They had someone's eyes on them at all times. They couldn't go wandering off and finding <laughs> things out. Uh, whereas in 1991, this was apparently not a concern for yeah. the writer of Red well, Dwarf magazine. Maybe featured. Red Dwarf at this point it wasn't as big a show as... Uh, accomplished cook in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would apply for any show today because yeah. as we've skirted around the internet is a factor in that. You know, it, there's more of a need to keep information under wraps now because information can spread out there faster than anyone can control it. Also, so. security. If you took a picture of something in 1992 and wanted to leak it to someone, it would take you a day to get it processed. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. would take you another day to get it somewhere where someone could like disperse that information. You have to get it, it Xeroxed. Like, it's just not worth it. Like Once you've got it out there, it's like everyone fucking knows anyway. So it's like it just became just slower. Yeah, yeah. It was just harder to disseminate information. Nowadays, you could tweet something and it'd be out and done in seconds. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Like they were left to, you know, just watch rehearsal footage on monitors, which presumably no one around. There's just them in front of the monitors. Today, you just get your phone out and film the screen. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I should point out actually that it does mention here, like a very unsurprising bit, but on the subject of autographs, that Hattie Hayridge had remained behind and was happily signing programs for what seemed like ninety percent of the audience. Like f- first off, that is. Very That's very on brand for Hattie. <laughs> and mm. it does sound like the audience did have an opportunity to for, for whatever cast members you know wanted to hang around and yeah the autographs, which is which is really really cool. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and very different. Yeah, very to what you expect today, yeah. where people are sort of floor managed on and off. Yeah, which is and which is also the also the, the security at Pinewood for the Promised Land, which is the most recent one, were very over the top in there. Efficientness. Oh, they were shit. Like people, they? yeah, people being led away the second that cut was called, and like before, before even the cast and crew had finished, sort of taking their bows and and saying goodbye to everyone, there were people were being ushered out of the audience. So yeah, not a not a situation that I recognise in this. No, there's so much interesting tidbits to be had here, and yeah, we've mentioned before that Rob Grant was called into a meeting 
a lot. <laughs> we're, we're, we're stuffed to, the, to a meeting, um, an urgent meeting with Juliet May, the new director. Do we think that <laughs> actually this magazine was there when Juliet May was being sucked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is and like he was so close to this amazing exclusive and didn't realize what was going on it was just oh it's annoying that they've got this meeting going on i mean it seems like an unusual about i mean well okay so it's audience recording night right so obviously mm. there's going to be lots of frantic but doug isn't there for start unfortunately doug Naylor didn't appear to be didn't around appear to be around so rob's the one running around like a blue ass fly like frantic meetings with his director You'd kind of think, oh, I don't know. I just don't know enough about the process. But yeah, like, it does seem, I mean, obviously things would not have been right at this point. Like, they were filming. This is Terraform. terraform. Yeah, yeah, this is Terraform. This is the big fuck up episode. Um, the, um, they'd had the, the incident with the VT shooting. As we've Maybe that's where Doug was. Maybe he was in the edit for the VTs that were going to be played in that. That's night. true. And that is consistent with Doug's. Doug's kind of testimony of this series on the documentary because he does kind of make it sound like Rob was nowhere to be seen during the edit. So he was saying about how they thought back to back to reality was shite and but Doug was in the edit and he said Rob was at home sulking. Oh that's what he that's what he <laughs> kind of gave us the impression of and that Doug had to ring him to say no this I think this show is good. I think it's good. Um but it seems here that Unless I'm very much mistaken, Rob seems to have been the the, the kind of the the directing, or like at least for this episode, he is mm. being the Juliet's co-director, right? It seems from this alone, uh, but it seems that yeah. um, Rob was the more hands-on in the studio, and Doug was the more hands-on in the edit. In the edit, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, and we don't know whether that was like that, you know, because this is the episode where it all started to go wrong and things started to break down in the production so they would have been improvising and like you know just trying to get the job done so whether it remained that way for the rest of it you know once they'd started to say right well that's that episode over let's move on to the next one we're in charge now whether they decided to you know divvy up the duties differently then rather than this one which seems just like a kickball scramble to just get get the show made the fact that doug says that like he was in the edit for back to reality so this is after shooting you can imagine mm. if rob had been the one running around like a blue ass fly on the set he would have got to the end of his duties and just basically burn out and just like yeah. collapsed <laughs> whereas doug was still doing the editing because that was his main responsibility maybe um didn't doug say in the thing that he was basically doing it doing the edit basically right up to the point where it was shown to the audience anyway so this is yeah. basically mm. this is that day this yeah. is that day when that was going on. Or one of those yeah. days, because they also had the um, tarantula um, insert as well as the... So presumably, yeah. The, so they had the, v, the VTs this day that they mention are quite getting cut in half. Um, the torture, the sexy torture scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, was there another one? Yeah, because they mentioned that, that that's the guest set, isn't it? Is the torture. Yeah. That would have been a thing to see. Uh, yeah, there's just anonymous sentence. Only one scene presented any real difficulties for the casting director. It was the same one that had given problems during the rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, there was just something going on. Which is the hugging, wasn't it? Yeah. Which actually, you know, ended up being one of the most successful scenes of the episode. So Yeah, I think it's quite well done. But then you, you just mm. don't know whether... You like... don't know what work went into getting it to that state. Yeah. Oh, There's definitely so much more to be told, isn't there? Especially yeah. around this, this like how many things are fracturing at this point? Like 
Robert's about to betray the whole cast. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're going back and forth between America, signing various shit. Their, prob- their working relationship is probably not at its highest because the year later it all goes wrong. You can see with the workload that they had yeah. why there was a strain on that relationship all of a sudden because oh, they were already producers and executive producers of the show and then they were the directors as well and had to basically rescue it or you know felt that they were the ones that rescued the series. You know, I was going to say single-handedly, but double-handedly, four-handedly, <laughs> and then went and did Red Dwarf USA, and then came back and did Series Six, and yeah, it's just you can see why it yeah. suddenly was too much. Yeah, imagine the toll that must have put on. It just screams burnout to me. Yeah, it does because yeah. like, I mean, Doug had three years off, and Rob had twenty years off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can imagine just that—that's the sort of thing that can break people, you know, mm. especially if you're prone to, you know, you know. Like, I don't know, stress is not something you deal with well or too much work, you know. Mm. We all know that. But Rob Grant handed out the free drinks. <laughs> yeah, he went around with the tokens, made sure it was all right. Good lad. <laughs> Proper northerner, make sure everyone's pissed. <laughs> they had a brief conversation with Danny John Jaws and Craig Charles before they rushed off to watch Leeds versus Aston Villa on TV. Um, <laughs> have you done the same research yeah. that I did? Yeah, I didn't like it. No, I didn't like it either. <laughs> <laughs> the results of that particular game live on... Uh, TV was Aston Villa 1, Leeds United 4. Uh, goals from Dwight York for Villa, but Rod Wallace, Mal Sterland and a brace from Lee Chapman for Leeds. Uh, which is bad, but bear in mind Leeds went on to win the title that year. Yeah, so. And they've never been as good since. Fuck them. No. <laughs> no, they're oh, so dirty. Dirty, dirty Leeds. fucking Leeds. Also, it's very odd that like I don't. I don't feel like Danny was much of a football guy. And I'm really not. I fucking hate. Him. <laughs> and and Craig is definitely not Villa, and definitely, definitely not Leeds. Worse than played away at Leeds. So maybe he was hoping that Leeds get got fucked or something. I don't know. Yeah, Liverpool were contenders for the title that year right, for sure. Okay, so. But I think at that stage, this was pre Premier League by exactly a year, so there wasn't as much saturation of live football on tv so it's just like if you're a if into your football it's yeah. a treat to see a live game that's yeah. very true that's very true but danny is a chelsea fan and is so exactly that's what i mean no interest in football <laughs> and his nephew plays for us oh does he really currently on loan to blackpool yeah tyrese john jules oh that's cool i didn't know that that's really good not the same nephew no. as um, <laughs> played baby lister one of them's an actor one of them's a footballer it's, uh, it's pretty good going <laughs> I don't think, for the record, he's not an actor. No, <laughs> he was for that brief he was, period but... of time. <laughs> As a month old or whatever. <laughs> Anything else on the big old uh, series preview then? There's the old story of Craig complaining about Chris's sexy scenes in the <laughs> yeah. series. That maybe, well, this must be the origin or the first time that story was told. Yeah. Kind of funny because the amount of fucking times we've heard that since. <laughs> Horry old tale. Oh yeah, that was the other thing. To ease the weight, we took advantage of the exclusive opportunity to spoil any surprises Red Dwarf 5 might have in store by reading all the scripts that were lying around in the office. Yeah. And yeah, that's the kind of thing where, you know, you wouldn't <laughs> you wouldn't have multiple scripts. You certainly wouldn't have scripts for all the episodes just lying around where any months. To be fair, find. these are these are two people writing for a magazine and I'm pretty sure they're allowed a little bit more leeway with regards to knowing things and being trusted with things than a fan would be. It's the yeah. official magazine as well. 
There might be some artistic license in the copy of that I'll be found these lying around. They might well have been left there for them to read and say, oh, because presumably the information from the scripts is where the Red Dwarf, uh, where the series five preview article comes from. Yeah. And that's why if you've just read Dr. Landstrom in a script and don't know anything else about the character, you might assume because you're a sexist that it's a man. They mention Hildegard though. I mean, like at a glance, you would assume that's a, a female name, just like, like you know your first assumption. So True. it's odd. Mm. Oh yeah, I guess we've mentioned this slightly, but like there's a bit of bants um, from Craig about how much money he got paid for his likeness, uh, his oh, oh yeah, <laughs> which is which is funny. And uh, yeah, Hattie Hayridge on the other hand was quite keen to be in a comic uh, as long as the strip was nothing like the fat slags in Fizz, <laughs> which <you> could, yeah, <laughs> quite amusing. But like, yeah, I had never thought about the image right side of things. You'd think all that would be. That's probably all part of his Grant Naylor Productions contract, isn't it? And he's just like, oh, mm. I saw the line item that said I got £10 for my image or whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> fuck you guys. <laughs> yeah, very interesting where the line is drawn. Mm. Like and what's, how the line is what's drawn, Craig... exactly. Yes. <laughs> and what the line looks like. What, what, but what, can, what can, constitutes a picture of Craig Charles and, and a picture of Lister? That's it. I think it's, uh... yeah, it's, it's like, it's like, it's the why is it there's like a there's like a legal thing for that called like the idiot on the street or something where like mm. if someone can passingly recognise someone the cunt on the bus something <laughs> the cunt on the bus yeah that's it it's, it's close thirty two the cunt on the bus so sort of anyone who could like fleetingly kind of recognise someone based on an image is like well that's grounds for saying that it must like you know if more than if it's more than statistical average then mm. you can assume that it's probably meant to be like that rather than. Does this all get traced back to Crispin Glover and Back to the Future? No, that was that was that was a prosthetics thing. That was a that was a whole thing about casting someone's face and using their likeness on screen for films. I don't know about comic mm. books and likenesses for because because people get cameos all the time in comic books all the time, right? So, yeah, uh, I wonder if Cyber Omni gets residuals for the. This, this I was just thinking of exactly that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like because because well, speaking it's a likeness, and therefore you know it's like you, you do. You, Sometimes it's a fable, but you, if you're getting like actual celebrities and stuff who actually mm. get, appear, like footballers often appeared and stuff in like Beano and things like that. Yeah, they presume that's like something that they'd be paid for for yeah. for their thing. But yeah, interesting you, thing to, to do. Ask, like, if you were to do, yeah, well. like a parody of the Spice Girls to think of a mid nineties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly that. Like, yeah. If you were doing a parody. Is that you using their image? Like, is there some fair use thing? Is it around fair that dealing? Is it, yeah. Yeah. is it? Yeah, we don't know anything. Yeah, it's interesting. But it's good. You mentioned Chris Carter. He once uh, there was a comic strip that he wrote and drew for Better Than Life, and he put one of the sort of background characters had a ID badge on that said I Symes, and he never paid me for that. <laughs> oh, okay. Still owes you a pint, does he? <laughs> we now come to the part of the podcast that I've been looking forward to a lot. And me. There is a quiz page Don't look right at, at the back. Don't look at it. Don't look at the quiz page. <laughs> this is the only page of the magazine that Danny and Capsi are yet to read uh, because I thought I'd give them the quiz and see what their Red Dwarf knowledge in 1992 is like. <laughs> oh, do I have to cast my mind back? Like, <laughs> no, <now>? no. <laughs> because I wouldn't know absolutely fuck all about <laughs> yeah. a lot of I don't know. I don't know. No, but yeah, there's 20 questions. And they are split into two sections, pretty tough and 
complete and total bastard <laughs> on the two difficulty <laughs> levels. So we'll make it fair, and I'll ask questions to you alternately, okay? So that nice. you will get the same equal level of difficulty. Who's going to go first? Do you want to toss for it, or should we just flip a coin? <laughs> one, one then tother. <laughs> has anyone got a coin? Oh, I've got a a chocolate button. One side has got sprinkles on it, the other side doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that's weighted. Oh, it is, isn't it? <laughs> 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 All right, Danny's going first and Caps is going second, because yeah, that's fine. the order in which I can see you on my screen. Yeah. So this first section, the pretty tough section, uh, questions worth one point each. I'm really fucking nervous. Why? Can I steal? <laughs> if he doesn't know. No. <laughs> no. I've decided just now. So, we start with Danny. What is Holly's IQ supposed to be? 6,000. Correct. Very Don't brilliant. overthink it. Don't <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, Capsie, what is Arnold Rimmer's middle name? Judas. Correct. Danny, who were Lister's sons Jim and Bexley named after? Jim Bexley Speed. Correct. What was the name of the original Holly's female counterpart? Hilly. Correct. This is like a penalty shootout. Like going to the penalty shootout. Tough. Uh, Danny, how long was Lister in stasis? Three million years. Correct. Uh, What was the name of Lister's cat? Frankenstein. Correct. What was odd about the mermaid dreamt up by the cat in Better Than Life? <laughs> it was the other way around. <laughs> the legs of a human and the top of a woman. No. <laughs> the legs of a human and the top of a woman. That's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the body of a different woman. <laughs> I'll let you have it. <laughs> I'll let you have that. You are saying that women aren't human, but we'll take it. <laughs> Capsi, what kind of radiation killed the crew of Red Dwarf? Cadmium 2. Correct. Who was the cat people's god? Lister. I'll give you that. The answers say close to the stupid or Lister to his friends. Oh. Uh, and finally for this round, Capsi, what animals did Lister plan to take to Fiji with him? A sheep and a cow and three or uh, two horses to make more horses. Uh, I'll give you that. It's a sheep and a cow and three horses. No, with horses uh, and horses. Uh, so... At the end of that round, you both have five points each. Way. So that was... What was the name of that round again, sorry? The, Pretty was, Tough. Pretty Tough. Okay. And the next lot are the complete and total bastard questions. Uh-huh. So in the first round, and this is the magazine's rules, the first round the questions were all worth one point. In this round, each question is worth 100 points. What? So that round was effectively completely meaningless. You yeah, well, already, the waiting is insane. <laughs> it already was because we're five holes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but if, if there was a difference, then it would have been we're completely wiped out with we're one question. <clears throat> okay, so round two. Danny, who was Kylie Gwendolyn? Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, director or producer of Androids. She she was both the All producer right. and director of Androids. Very good. Okay. Very good. Capsi, how many irradiated haggis are stored on Red Dwarf? Oh, this is I I never get these. Four thousand nine hundred and eighty-one. Oh, it was four thousand six hundred and ninety-one. Oh, fuck! I can't. I can never keep numbers in my head. 
So Danny is now 100 points ahead. Oh, <laughs> Insurmountable. Uh, Danny, on what date is Gaspacho Soup Day? Oh, on November the 25th. He's getting the fucking easy ones. Well, considering that Series 1 has never been repeated or released at this point, it's they're all pretty difficult, actually. Yes, but we like, we are coming with it. Ian. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but for the time they were difficult. <laughs> uh, Capsi, what are Crichton's middle and last names? Middle and last names? Oh, 2X4B523P. Correct. Uh, which ship has a computer called Gordon? Uh, the Scott Fitzgerald. Correct. Shit. Uh, Capsi, who invented the condom that calls you back? Fuck. I don't think I'd get this. No. I know what it is. Kip Dr. Denny. Bob Parkman, is it? Dr. Bob Parkman? <laughs> Dr. Bob Hawkwind. <laughs> oh, that's Hawkwind? Objection, Your Honour, that's not what we're doing on the fucking oh. subtitles. <laughs> uh, no. The answers were upside down. I misread it. It's Hawkmin. 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 I like Porkmin. Pork, I like Porkmin. Wind. I think it'd be the best one. <laughs> Dr. Bob Porkwind. <laughs> Where are we? Oh, yes. Danny. Uh, what was the name of Lister's father's dog? Hannah. Oh, fuck. Come Correct. on. <laughs> Porkmin versus Hannah the dog. Capsi. You're not going to like this. Oh. How many words did Lister share with Kachansky when she was alive? Uh, 361. There's uh, 173. Danny, your last question. When Rimmer ordered the Scutters to repaint Red Dwarf, what colour change did he insist on? Oh, for fuck's ah. sake! <laughs> military grey to ocean grey. Well, that's kind of the question. I'm going I'm to down the hill and going to say military grey to ocean grey. Incorrect. Oh. It was ocean grey to military grey. Okay. And Capsi. How long was Lister in art college? 94 minutes. Oh. Oh. 93 minutes. 90, 97. 97, 97 minutes. minutes. And so, at the end of the quiz, <laughs> Capsi has a very creditable 105 points but this week's winner with 405 points is Danny <laughs> absolutely humiliated <laughs> uh, to put it another way uh, Danny got 9 out of his 10 questions right and Capsie got 6 out of his 10 I will contest Hawkman to the end of the earth <laughs> Hawkman the Merciless <laughs> it's not Hawkman oh, it's not written like that in the script it's not written like that in the subtitles yeah, it's not I think you should have that. I think you should be allowed that. Cause, well, you didn't know anyway. Did well, no, I didn't know. I didn't say <laughs> no. I didn't, I, it. No. It was you just answering it just yeah. for fun. <laughs> but, however, despite the aforementioned scoring system, there's a bit at the bottom of, like, how did you score? And if you got zero, you're a smeghead. Right. If you got one, If you got one to five, you did a bit better, but you're still a bit of a gimboid. Um, six to ten points, smart ass, <laughs> uh, And a hundred plus points... Oh yeah, to get that kind of score, you either sneak to look at the answers, or you must have written the quiz yourself, you cheating goit. <laughs> I think, but all that would require to get 100 points is to answer one question from the second <laughs> one, <laughs> which you both did. So you've both got the maximum possible um, rank- ranking for this quiz, so there well we done. Go. There we go. You're Vindicated. both dickheads. That was fun. I can't remember, but I think there's more quizzes along the way. I so. hope so, yeah. That will be a new. That will be a regular feature. 
I hope. Um, all that remains, though, in this issue is, on the last page, half of it is taken up by a lovely uh, advert for Red Dwarf merchandise. Which doesn't know the name of Crichton's fucking name! Despite the fact that it's written on the t-shirt above the caption that says Crichton. Oh my god. Crichton, everybody, Crichton. <laughs> Crichton. Crichton. <laughs> I have never seen the Crichton Says t-shirt, ever. And I've been to a lot of DJs. I've, I've only seen it in adverts. I've never seen it in the wild. I think Whereas one of the, the main others, reasons may be that white t-shirts don't tend to age very well. I have two of those t-shirts, the both of the book ones, and they are faded as fuck, obviously. I don't think either of them fit me anymore because of lockdown. Where all my clothes shrunk, every single item of clothing That's I own. so unfortunate, yeah. Covid shrink the world. But yeah, they're in all right shape for 20, you know, yeah, nearly 30-year-old t-shirts. quality at the time. Uh, well, can you see on your copy, your, your physical copy, what Crichton's quote is. It's been my nipple nuts and send me to Alaska. Uh-huh. That is what Crichton says. I it is. is. <laughs> every week, every week, he says that rapturous. Every calls. bloody week. Yeah. Oh, walks in. Spin my nipple nuts and send me to Alaska. <laughs> Hello, everybody. But you know, bargain. Eight quid for all of these t-shirts. Even by nineties prices, the early nineties. Yeah, a good t-shirt. That is that very is. reasonable. And the baseball cap's only a fiver. I would not have felt guilty um, pressurising my mum into spending £8 on one of these, but I never did. That's because you couldn't afford the magazine in the first place. Yeah, well, <laughs> you didn't know. <laughs> Too busy playing Sonic, mate. I was... Obviously, all of this magazine is a time capsule, but there's just something about this type of advert that you know is the prices and you know the way things are described. The logos for Visa and Access... Visa and access, welcome. I can't remember what a fucking gyro is. Just... Yeah, I'm not. I think a gyro is a post office check or something. But then I looked it up. Apparently, gyro is a, a it's a European word that just means circulation. Yeah. You know, circulation of money. It was just a sort of shorthand for bank transfer, essentially. Okay, because this type of thing, like you might see ads in magazines today for for t-shirts or clothing or whatever bits of merchandise but there wouldn't be a form for you to cut out or photocopy and fill in and you know fill in your your credit card details on the form and or send a check with your address written on the back like there'd just be big pictures of the t-shirts and a url and that would (laughs) that would do i don't know how happy i would be to write my full Card number onto a piece of paper Especially and send it in the post. That's... By definition, no. that is enough information to charge whatever the fuck you want to your card. Yeah, like, because it's right here. Yeah, you don't even have to sign it. <laughs> you just put in you put in your number and the expiry yeah, date. Bizarre how much like the world has changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was fine because you know there was no criminals in the past. No, no. I worked in a shop just at the end of um, the practice of. Uh, of writing checks or card payments that you have to run through one of those perforator machines. Those mm. little yeah. things with the yeah those just yeah. for just for a few months I used them and then um, card yeah, paper. had card readers yeah yeah. All that remains is a preview of the next issue, mm. which is also going to be our next magazine rack dwarfcast. That mm. makes sense. We'll have Robert Llewellyn, The Tin Man Talks, The End Part Two. When you're halfway through the end, how long can it be before the beginning? And it's not halfway through. 
it's saying that by the end of part two, it will be halfway through. Yeah. Also, the answer to that question is 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> we can also look forward to Arnold J. Rimmer, My Life, My Diaries, and Reader's Letters. Yes, so in the next issue of the magazine, they have their first letters page. It says in this preview, get writing now or we'll just have to make some up, and boy, will they be complimentary. But this is another opportunity for you, our dear readers slash listeners, to get involved, because we want your letters, comments to read in place of uh, when we get to that bit of the magazine so basically write in leave a comment on this article over at www.ganymede.tv with your opinions on the magazine volume one issue one or indeed on our dwarf cast about the magazine uh, you can leave comments on this article over at www.ganymede.tv or you can tweet us Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. And so that just about wraps it up for issue one. We will, of course, be back on the rack to cover issue two in a couple of Dwarfcast time. And don't forget, we want your comments for the letters page and your entries for the caption competition. Our next Dwarfcast, however, will be one of our uh, non-Red Dwarf commentaries. This time, we will be commentating on Blackadder. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay happy, stay warm. Staleybridge Celtic is a football club based in Staleybridge, Greater Manchester. They're currently members of the Northern Premier League Premier Division. They play at Bowerfold and the team traditionally plays in a blue and white strip. And until next time. Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Hollister sometimes looks like Biff Tanner. <laughs> <laughs> Biff Tannen. Tannen, sorry. Biff Tanner was an early Coronation Street character. <laughs> Elsie's son. Swipey card readers, but still. Of course, you don't even need continuity. Yeah, no, yeah. Just use your fucking phone. I was going to make a point, but it was dull even like halfway through saying it. Is that why you started? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I made the decision in the split second between having the thought and saying the first word <laughs> that it was a boring point and that it should just take the piss out. But then it wasn't funny enough to say. So. <laughs> it just fell apart. <laughs> so, therefore. Boop. And don't forget, we want your comments for the. Uh, no. No. I did, I don't forget because I haven't set it up yet. I'm going to have to go back. Hello. Insert. <laughs> <laughs>